and welcome to Talking Business with me, Danny Pardo. In these interviews, we'll be exploring employability insights, career advice, educational experiences, life stories and more from a wide variety of people in a wide variety of industries with the ultimate aim of helping you to make decisions about your studies and your career. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review, share and subscribe to this podcast. It's all very much appreciated. So here we go. Let's talk business. Hello and welcome to a longer talking business episode here today and the reason it's longer is because it's full of so much useful, insightful and motivational information and that information comes from Umara who used to be a student in my business class many many moons ago and I'm not going to talk anymore because believe me everything you're going to be hearing in here is just stunning. So sit back, relax, enjoy, here's Umara. Hello everyone, Talking Business is back and we've got extra special, extra super show for you today. We've got an ex-student of mine, um, we've got Umara. So hello Umara, how are you? Hi, I'm very well, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I've been waiting all week to be in this hot seat. Take Mars. that Oprah. Yeah, exactly. Who needs all that when you've got, you know, Pardo's business? Here we go. You know, this is game changing right here. So let's get stuck in, shall we? Uh, all, all that we know is that you used to study at the same college that I worked at. Um, so who is Umara? Um, if you had to explain who you are to somebody, who are you? Depends what day you get me on. Sometimes I'm the most animated, sociable, extroverted person ever. Sometimes I'm just a sports aficionado obsessed with football. Sometimes I'm a fashionista. Sometimes I'm a candle enthusiast. And sometimes I just don't want to know you. <laughs> but, um, for the most part, for the most part, um, I'm just a fun-loving, happy-go-lucky girl next door. Um, happy to speak to anybody, happy to support anyone in their time of need. Um, and in lockdown, I've just been hit and miss, to be honest. Um, probably the happiest person you'll ever meet, but then the most introverted person as well. So it just goes to show. I'm just a roller coaster. That's yeah, it's, it sounds like it. I might as well just throw this list of questions yeah. away and we'll just, you know, completely wing it by the sounds of it. So you said introverted, but I'm sure people are going to watch this and go, really? So, you know, maybe we'll, uh, you'll try and explain that one to us a little bit as we go along here. Um, but anyway, great to speak to you again. It's been around about uh, 10, 8, 10 years, something like that since you studied at JC. Is that right? No, it hasn't been 10 Has years, Danny. Been 10? Goodness me. It's Six. been, I'll work, it, I'll work it out for you. I studied at JC from 2012 to 2014. So that's that nine, wasn't... you know, we're getting there. Almost 10. Oh my God. <laughs> so you weren't far off. <laughs> Sorry about that. You know, honesty is always what we do. Um, okay, so 2012 to 2014. And. Um, what did you do at college? What did you study at college back in the day? Do you remember? Oh, it's going to be awkward if you don't. So. Just about. So I studied business with you. <laughs> so I did business, I did government and politics, and I studied media. So they Marvelous. were my three main A-levels there. Okay. Um, so when you did your A-levels, I got really some nice questions here from some students. Uh, one of them was, what was your goal at college? So when you were 16, 17, 18... Where where did you want to go from there? Did you have like a five year plan, ten year plan, or were you just at college because that's like the next thing you do? So I've said this before to half a dozen people already, but I was adamant. I was absolutely hell bent. I was not going to go to university. Right. So my five year, ten year, fifteen year plan was 
no, I'm not going to go to uni. That's not even going to be in the pipeline. That's not even going to be a consideration. Um, I wanted to walk the road less traveled. And I thought, maybe I'll get my foot in the door with an apprenticeship somewhere. Maybe the job prospects will be okay. I can work my way up in a company somewhere. That didn't happen. So um, my plan was actually in the foreseeable future, in the next five to 10 years, I'll probably get my foot in the career ladder. I'll work my way up in a company, probably start my business soon enough. I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I still do to a certain extent. But again, it's just it's just a case of the right timing and finding a niche and something that you like. So if you asked me in college, I, when I was when I was saying, you know, I'm not going to go to university, people would always ask, so what do you want to do then? Uni's like the only option. Yeah. But for me, it wasn't a case of going to uni to just do something half-assed and not because, because someone's telling you as opposed to you wanting to do it. So, I mean, my long-term plan was not to go to uni and to do something that I can kind of carve out my own path and work out my own identity in the process. So that's what I would have told you when I was finishing college. But yeah. then what actually happened... Well, spoiler alert, happened. yeah, yeah. I hate to, you know, here we go. So the five-year plan, 10-year plan, start your own business, entrepreneur, no university. Okay, cool. Yeah. So what actually happened? So let's take it from my gap year. Finish JC, yeah. uh, 1st September after college. Everyone else is kind of winding out at university fresh as week and I'm stuck at home thinking hang on this isn't what I thought I'd be doing I thought I would have had you know an acceptance from an apprenticeship somewhere I was applying for the big four I was applying for KPMG Deloitte PwC you name it I was applying every single application was a rejection um and not on the grounds of you're not experienced enough, not on the grounds of you haven't done enough work experience because I had plenty of that. It was just potluck. I didn't get to where I wanted to be. So I ended up working dead-end jobs in retail for a few months. And then the January the following year, so this is still my gap year now, I had a decision to make. It was a case of stay in retail or apply to university on the off chance I find something I actually want to do, which was a bit of a risk for me because despite my best efforts, I tried... I went to extreme lengths not to go to uni, but it turns out I had to apply anyway because I didn't find anything that my heart was in. So at that point in time, January 2015, this is, I had just started a part-time job at Selfridges, uh, which was really glitzy and glamorous, and I absolutely loved it. But I knew that doing that in a full-time capacity was not something I'd want to do. So essentially, whilst I was banging out the full-time shifts at Selfridges, I was applying for uni in the background, and I came across a course called PPE which is kind of in line with the sorts of A-levels that I had from JC and very much intertwined with my interests and my keenness to learn about politics, economics, all things social policy. So it kind of merged everything that I'm interested in all together into one course. So of course, I picked up the phone, called the course leader, and he basically said, we haven't been running this programme for very long. It's in its infancy. We've only had one year's worth of students to go by. You would be part of the second year fleet. Would you be interested to come in for an open day? And then the rest is history. I went yeah. two months later to UOB um, for a for an open evening for PPE and I signed myself up and it sounded like the right thing to do at the time. Yeah. And there went my inhibitions about university and all the reservations I had. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's PPE stand for, for people who don't know? Social policy, politics and economics. So typically, I think it's philosophy, politics and economics. But this strand of PPE, that's exclusive to University of Birmingham they actually replace the philosophy with social policy to make it a bit more accessible to people because philosophy usually goes over people's heads 
people are bored out of their brains with it. So they wanted to make it a bit more modern, a bit more contemporary, and less associated with the typical con connotations of it being an Oxbridge degree. So they're trying to open itself up to so many more people who wouldn't otherwise go for it. Yeah. Why did you take a gap year? Or hey, what, it wasn't meant or, to be a gap. Actually, actually, two parts <laughs> of it. Because one, why did you take a gap year? And two, what were you expecting to get out of it that you maybe didn't? And is there anything that you maybe would have done differently on that? Yeah, so just to backtrack, it wasn't actually supposed to be a gap year. It was meant to right. be indefinitely, not going to uni, oh, figuring yeah. it out on my own. <laughs> you call it yeah. a gap year now because it was a gap year, but at that point it was, I'm just not going. A gap so, so now I'm like, so now I'm trying to play it off as, oh, that was always in the plan. I just wanted to find myself for a year and go travelling. You know how it is. Oh. But that's not actually that's not actually what happened. So initially, remember, my thought process was, I'm not going to go to university. It doesn't suit the type of person I am. I couldn't even put my finger on what I wanted to do, let alone plug myself into something that, you know, doesn't really appeal to me. So my plan for the gap year was go through various motions with job applications, suddenly find something somewhere and hopefully stick it out. Hopefully I like it enough. So that didn't happen. So I was in and out of different retail jobs. Eventually I ended up at Selfridges January the following year, stuck that out full time because I really liked it there. But um, what made me then go for university as opposed to sticking out in the gap year was, was a confluence of a few factors really. It was my parents who are super well educated, my mom's side and my dad's side, both degree educated, professional jobs. Um, and I didn't want to stick out like a sore thumb because the precedent in our family was, as the eldest grandchild on one side of my family, mind you, the precedent was everybody's going to go to uni, get a formal education, get that degree, and then do well for themselves. And what I had done essentially is started a bit of a precedent, which is a bit dangerous for my family, which is, oh, the eldest grandchild, Amara's not going to go to university. What are the others going to do? Yeah. And so it was a bit of it was a bit of peer pressure, but not so much peer pressure because the decision was ultimately mine. Yeah. But I think it was always because I was in, I found myself in a place where I hadn't really accomplished much at such a young age. And everyone was kind of telling me, this, is, this isn't it for you. you. There's more to life than retail jobs. You're always going to find retail, even if all else failed. That's always going to be waiting for you. Get an education. So it was that kind of mentality that kind of sunk in and embedded itself into my brain. And I thought, hang on a minute. What if it is just retail and there's nothing else? What if I've fallen into a trap? And it was those sorts of conversations that really stuck with me and haunted me on some nights. And I thought, no, I'm waking up for work every day, slogging away yeah. at a job that I can't see myself doing for the rest of my life. So yeah, the alternative and was... And that's a really interesting point because some people would love to get stuck in a retail job. You know, there's, there's people with a lot of passion for that and they would have loved to have done that and work their way up and they're really interested. And obviously that landscape has changed a lot in the last 12 months, hasn't it? Um, but it's really interesting that for you, just like, no. But you're a people person. I mean, what... Are, or, or, you know, it, it appears you're a people person. Is that not the job for you then? You know, chatting to people and talking about things like that? I mean, you could say it's quite a twisted mentality, really. But the way I thought was, if you're not going to become a doctor, not going to become a professor, not going to become a dentist, not going to do the traditional vocational courses which land you into a specific job, university isn't economically viable. I thought traditionally, I mean, if you look at my socioeconomics, I don't come from the wealthiest of families. I grew up in inner city Birmingham, um, not an affluent area by any stretch. And I thought I'd probably be really up against it. If I take on nine grand a year debt um, on a three-year course, um, take out loans upon loans, because obviously I can't afford subsistence throughout uni. So that's my only way of getting by. I thought 
how am I going to make ends meet if ultimately I end up in a job that I'm not going to like or take to very kindly or worst case scenario, do a degree. And like so many other graduates out there with first class honours, with master's degrees, even with PhDs, struggle to get into the labour market. Yeah. Um, especially around that time. I mean, it wasn't in the midst of the financial crisis. It was just off the back end of that. Yeah. But I just, I couldn't fathom the thought of, because I, I saw so many people, so many of my friends who were older than me, go through the cycle that is further education, come out the back end, and they didn't have a job waiting for them. And that ultimately stunned me because they were the most hardest pe- working people I knew. And they struggled to get onto the career ladder. And that's what really scared me. But despite all that, despite the scare stories, I, I put myself forward for that course, PPE. And then I did it, enjoyed it, luckily. And um, I did manage to find a job having done that. But again, it was just the way I was thinking at that time. I don't want to become a doctor. I don't want to go into nursing. don't want to be a paramedic. don't want to do the sciences. I don't, because everybody kept telling me the A-levels you did weren't academically rigorous. You did business. You did media. You did politics. What are you going to do with that? Where was chemistry? Where was biology? biology? Chemistry, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I've had that discussion with many students when when they sign up to courses, and they've got these same trepidations about that. And it's really interesting you mentioned that a job you didn't like, because a lot of people I speak to, they always say, you know, in terms of advice, get a job you love, do something you really like, and it sounds so cheesy. And you're like, oh, you know, here we go again. I'm being told again. But you're another person <laughs> who's like, I didn't like that job. I didn't want to do it for the next forty years. You know, it's just so, it seems such a simple concept. Um, and we'll come back to that in a little bit, actually, about, about your work and things. But so what did you achieve in your degree? What grade did you get? And how on earth did you get a grade like that? What like what did you have to do to get that grade? Not, not bad for someone who didn't want to go to uni, eh? Yeah. <laughs> That's, everyone keeps throwing that in my face. Oh, Amara, the same <laughs> girl who didn't, who didn't want, to want to go to university. Yeah. Didn't we tell you you were going to do yeah. well? Yeah. Um, but then what I will say is that's not the end of it. I did get a first class honours. Yeah. How I did that, it was just being the most hardworking university student. But that came at the expense of, I mean, in hindsight, what I would say is I took university very seriously. And to the end that I didn't actually enjoy the social aspects. I didn't really yeah. partake in societies. I didn't do all that much by extracurricular. I didn't soak up the sights and sounds that any typical University of Birmingham student would do. I didn't tap into its offerings. I didn't really um, socialise outside of my own discipline or outside of the course of study that I was doing. So it really did come at the detriment of all those other things that you would associate with a university experience. But for me, I just threw myself in headfirst. I was also balancing a challenging part-time job at Selfridges. At that point, I'd um, transferred my contract from full-time to weekend, so I still had something throughout uni. So Saturday, Sunday, we're all working full time at Selfridges. And then Monday to Friday, it meant I had to pack my calendar that much more to get my work done. So I think it's that that actual insight into, oh, my God, I need to get my job, my work done within Monday to Friday in order to do my part time job on a Saturday, Sunday. That got me thinking I need to work 10 times harder because I'm juggling two things here, Um, which meant that I didn't do anything else. I mean, I love my sport. I didn't give up my sport or my TV shows or my fitness because that's all things that I like. But in terms of social activities, I didn't really soak up the sights and sounds of the university as much. I'd go to uni, come back because luckily 
I drove, so I passed my driving test quite early, so I didn't have to catch like public transport or anything. So I'd get in my car, park up at uni, go to my lectures, go to my seminars, come back home, and then do my studying. It was a very lonely existence, but that's the kind of that's the kind of thing that I chose for myself. Yeah, I just yeah. thought I just want to take my degree seriously. Everybody told me, you know, it's going to be hard to come by. You're not going to get the experience again. So that was my line of thinking. But looking back, the advice I'd give to people is make sure you enjoy your university experience. It's so short-lived, it flies by. Um, An hour here or there just to kind of take part in a society or get to know other people or join networking events is not going to cost you in the long run. So definitely do that kind of thing because I didn't and I have come to regret it now. Yeah, nice advice. I mean, you mentioned there as well um, sport. And, yeah. you know, I, I like a bit of sport, pretty much just American football, really. But, um, you know, you are a sport uh, aficionado. You seem to know, um, I was going to say a bit about everything then, but I change, I'm, I'm changing it in my head too. You seem to know a lot about everything. Um, so what does sport do for you then? I mean, I mean, you seem to, you know, your knowledge and your, your passion for it spreads across a variety of sports. Why, why? And, you know, what does that do for you and your fitness and, and all those things you're interested in? It's always been my outlet and it's always been my form of escapism. I mean, growing up, PE was my favourite lesson at school. I always had a good thing going with my PE teachers. I took that straight to college and university. I was always part of different gyms at the same time. I used to do MMA and Muay Thai. That's a very key sport of mine in terms of actually doing it. So around college time, I came into contact with a local um, Muay Thai instructor and he basically started training me and ever since then I have been absolutely enamored by MMA that was my entry point into mixed martial arts and Thai boxing um football cricket rugby tennis NBA I've grown up on (laughs) I've always had the Sky Sports channels in the house Mm -hmm. traditionally like other households within my family have always had say Sky Sky News as the default channel or BBC One for us it was always Sky Sports News (laughs) or Sky Sports One and now it's like BT Sport it's always on in the background and I think I owe that to the kind of environment I was brought up in so I'm the eldest child I've got a younger brother who's 22 now um, but we're basically the eldest children and my dad did an awful lot with us growing up to get us into sports he'd take us to football on the weekends he'd make sure we've grown up on it and um, we can try out different sports the ones that we enjoy it really got me into that so I think it's a it's a combination of factors kind of self-taught because I kind of YouTube the hell out of it when I was growing up watch whatever I could get my hands on and tried out loads of activities in school so it's that but it's also the fact that I always had that screen that my dad was watching in the background. It was always a football, always a cricket, always asking him questions. How do the overs work in cricket? How do the innings work? Why are the numbers going up so quickly? You'd have to explain so, that to me, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. And then, I mean, over time, I've just added so many more. Like, I was never an NBA fan growing up. And all of a sudden, I'm an NBA fan. Like, it's yeah. just happened in the past few years. Yeah. I just like to get stuck into different sports. It does ever so much for me. And it's not just the celebrity that's associated with it. People get too embroiled in the athletes these days and what they're doing and who they're sponsored by. It's the pure form of the game so it's actually the sports that I'm enamored by because I love to see athletes who have like gone from rags to riches almost and sport has been their way out of loads of desolate times and hardships and I just think that's the life-changing angle of sport and people don't really see that might not have happened for me because I never pushed myself in terms of sport that way but it happens for so many people and it's just lovely to see it's so inspiring that's brilliant and isn't it great that we've got access to that but you can say, I want to I want to watch this 
I mean, you can. You can watch it for hours and hours and hours on YouTube, you know, but in terms of having a personal interest in something, you know, it's it's so important, I find, to, to mental health and things like that. So, you know, how important is, like, the keeping fit and the physical activity to your mental health? Have you, have you ever struggled with uh, mental health, if you don't mind me asking? And, um, you know, what, what's the situation with that? Has the physical side of things helped you to get out of those situations? You know, you said, you said earlier you were introverted. Uh, and again, I guarantee you, nobody's watching this going, yeah, 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 she seems really introverted. Um, so is that part of it as well? You know, how, how does that all work? I have a very difficult time explaining that to people. Mm. It's quite, it's like oxymoronic, isn't it? I come across as somebody who's so extroverted, somewhat confident, likes to have a bit of a chinwag, but at the same time, I know in my heart of hearts, it's something that I can do and it comes easily to me, but sometimes it's not always something that I want to do or it's not always the most engaging thing for me or the right thing for me sometimes. So I've chosen to do this day because I've really wanted to do it for a very long time. But I mean, quite possibly if it was a few months ago when I was having a really bad spell with my mental health, I probably wouldn't have offered to do this. It would have been something that's not possible for me. I would have logged out after a long day and thought that's it. Bye bye world. Don't want to see anybody else. Don't want to speak to anyone. And that's not just come about off the back of lockdown like it has for a lot of people. I've struggled with it throughout. So I had a few bouts of bad mental health back at university. I actually didn't struggle with my university at all in terms of my course and the academic side. Mm -hmm. It was more a case of perhaps the way that I approached it. I put a lot of pressure on myself. Um, I'm I'm absolutely my own worst enemy sometimes so I've got perfectionist tendencies and OCD tendencies so if something didn't quite go right um, in an assignment or with an exam or some presentation that I had coming up I'd really give myself a hard time and not let myself enjoy you know if I, I was always going back to something that went wrong or something that I could have perhaps done better and in terms of that my OCD traits and my perfectionist tendencies they always came in the way of my fulfillment and enjoyment of other things and that's I suppose where sport came in to dry down out that background noise to tell me that no it's fine just watch the football and forget about it that kind of helped me because it came at the expense of real human conversations and it stopped me from having to talk to somebody about how I was feeling so sport would kind of fill that void for me um, so that's how I've managed my mental health and the fitness it's literally got me out of the darkest of days. So like I said, I started um, training Thai boxing a few years ago when I was at college, met an instructor, did it daily for about a couple of months. So Monday to Friday, we'd do one hour session with him. It kept me from going insane at some points because I could, I, could, I could feel it. It was like a melting pot. Yeah. And every day was becoming more difficult for me at university. Sometimes I'd feel like I was doing it to myself, I wasn't socialising enough, wasn't seeing friends, didn't know how to cope with it, would go straight to the gym, um, do a bit of sparring, do a bit of boxing, and it would literally make me feel like I was on top of the world. But at the same time, I have come to realise that that was also bad, (laughs) because, I mean, as as much as you can do that, and there's an outlet for it, you've still got to come home and address the issues that you've got going on. And as much as I wanted to escape it, I would burn out of sweat in in the boxing gym or in my own gym or home gym whatever I created all these little homes for myself to escape whatever was going on in my head but ultimately I couldn't escape it so I mean it's really difficult and I'm still battling it I mean it's not something that's been born out of stress or an event in my life or a trauma that I've suffered it's just something that I'm dealing with and it's on an ongoing basis and I wouldn't say lockdown has exacerbated it either 
it's just yeah. something that I've always had to deal with in the background. So it's quite interesting for me because you'll speak to some students, Danny, and they might say, actually, I felt it coming on a bit more in lockdown. I didn't know I had mental health issues and it's all getting a bit much for me. And I've actually had probably the best time with my mental health over lockdown, which is which is unusual because you'd think now would be the time to suffer from a mental health issue. Yeah, I mean, that, that doesn't any. get the media coverage, does it? But some people are actually yeah. quite enjoying, um, you know, the, the working from home, learning from home. I spoke to some students and they said, no, we're quite like this. You know, I'm sitting my own timetables. I'm doing my own thing. Um, yeah. I'm getting the content that I want to with the people I want to. You know, you're only having to see the people you or speak to the people you want to. So, no, you, you're right on that. But I don't think that gets any coverage really <laughs> from what I've seen um, no it doesn't I, I mean, mean at the go- university and in the workplaces that I worked at it became such a buzzword well-being and mental health and they had weeks and weeks dedicated to it but I think sometimes it's just become so corporatized and hijacked by a whole wave of we're doing so much for mental health now yeah. we've got helplines and confidential hubs that people can go and visit and speak to people on but the signs are not visible so when you're out on the street you can't really say oh, that girl looks like she's suffering from mental health issues because it's almost something that you can't see. So unless you've detected it in somebody because of some kind of behaviour or characteristic that they've got, or unless someone approaches you and says, I need help, which the vast majority of people don't do, you can't really plug in to the signs of mental health and help where you think you might be able to. You can do all these conferences and webinars um, and try to target general the general population of students and alumni and staff members it's not always targeted and I think as much as other people can come in and help you you've got to be able to take the steps yourself and willing yeah. to help yourself as well yeah. and so that's often the of most difficult part yeah that's that's often the most difficult part isn't it in terms of saying yeah I I need to do something about me for me and I'm speaking from personal experience here you know um it, it is really tricky to kind of look yourself in the mirror and then choose to make changes and choose to make a difference you know and choose to do the things that will kind of help you out on that i mean you're you know you're as you said nine years uh, away from being at college um you know mental health isn't i presume anyway for me it isn't you know one steady kind of this is what it's like all the time um how would you describe that is it a roller coaster and you know how are you still kind of going on that roller coaster I'm still on it. It's still yeah. going. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting for it to stop. But um, yeah. I mean, no, I don't think it's ever going to stop, to be honest with you. Because mm-hmm. even when you feel you're most positive on some days, you're like, oh, I think I've overcome it. Nothing can stop me now. And it's just little things that might happen in your day to day. You might get the feedback that you weren't looking for from your manager at work. A family member might rub you up the wrong way. Football team might not get the scoreline that you were wishing for. Yeah. Little things like that, as trivial or as serious as those things might be on a spectrum, the tiniest things can push you over the edge and yeah. when you expect it least. So it's not like you can feel it coming, but it's about preparing yourself and having coping mechanisms in place. And my coping mechanisms coping mechanisms weren't always the healthiest so I say I'd plug myself into sport or a tv show or the gym but again it wasn't always the best way of helping me and I have gotten better with that so riding the wave of that roller coaster at certain points at certain pinch points um in the peaks and troughs I will say actually I'm having a bad day I want to speak to a friend I want to speak to a colleague I want to speak to somebody that I trust and I've started doing that a lot more now before it was the case of I'm Amara I can't ask for help it's a bit of (laughs) 
you know like the whole yeah. no but I'm the person everybody comes to I've got everything together I've got my ducks in a row I'm that person people confide in I can't be the person asking for help do you know it was more that yeah. thing yeah. and no one was putting that expectation or pressure on me it was more me affirming to myself yeah. yeah it's all a mental thing you've got to be the shoulder for everyone else to cry on but you can't cry on anyone else's shoulder yeah. not that I've needed a good cry because <laughs> I don't think I need a good cry. Yeah. I might, I might end up crying after this. You just yeah. never know. <laughs> but, <laughs> With the excitement, yeah. that, oh, I did it. Oh, that's it. I'm famous. I've made it. But yeah, yeah I mean, mental, you know, our students, uh, you know, I've spoke to a few of them about it, and it's almost like they're told, well, if you do these things, then you will be fine. And you know, it's not one size fits all. You know, the advice that you're giving, the advice that I'm giving, you know, we're not therapists or counselors. You know, it really is such an individual thing. But I think, you know, like you were saying, you know, the corporatization of it all. Um, you know, the, the ability to say, well, we're going to do this and it'll solve everybody's problems. But, well, no, not really. You know, but it really is such an individual thing. And you're you're saying, you know, the things that have worked for you, great, might not work at all for me. So. You've got to be really careful with those, haven't you? So, but nice one for keeping on, you know, rocking and rolling with it. It's it's a real tricky one, um, and I think as well, you you were talking about you can't tell people have it again. If you were to watch this video back and you look at us two and you, and you say, oh yeah, she's got mental health challenges, you know, you wouldn't necessarily do that, would you? Um, no, you wouldn't. I mean, I've had plenty of help along the way. Like I said, I've recently started a new job, but yeah. in my previous role, I'm sure we'll come on to that. Yeah. In my previous role. I was very much affected by mental health issues okay. that were brought on as a result of the job itself. I found myself in a place where I wasn't enjoying work. I felt like I wasn't fulfilling my potential. I hit a glass ceiling. There wasn't any sort of career progression for me. Um, and I didn't really feel like I was being stretched and challenged. And because of the monotony of the day job, I genuinely felt like I was putting a lot of pressure on myself to get out of it, to find a better job, to make moves career-wise. And because that wasn't happening for me, I was in this vicious cycle of just feeling really bad for myself, rejection after rejection with job applications, wasn't helping that, trying to speak to my line manager at work, but with no sort of positivity in sight. I still had to do the job. The job wasn't going to change. They tried to make it easier for me, but it, I wasn't getting anywhere with it. So even though those lines of communication were open to me by my line manager and the whole well-being thing that they had, at the end of the day, only I had to get myself out of the situation I knew that that job wasn't fulfilling me. It's quite a toxic work culture. And um, I had to make moves to try and get myself out of there, regardless of what anybody else said, because everybody I went to in the workplace would say, yeah, but unfortunately, we understand what you're going through, but the demands of the business are still there. You're going to need to do the job. You're going to need to put the shift in, which is fine, because again, that's what I was being paid to do. But because they weren't willing to kind of help me develop where I wanted to be, they were kind of pigeonholing me into a place that wasn't good for me that wasn't conducive to helping me on my mental health journey but on the back end of that now that I'm out of that job that I didn't like and I'm in a better position I'm much happier I've settled into my new role I found that there's been drastic changes in my behavior and my mental health already so sometimes it's certain things that are going on in your life that you wouldn't already know I didn't know I knew that I didn't like my job but I didn't know it was taking a toll on me mentally there's a different there's a difference there you could kind of separate yourself from it you know it was just that's like it. this is what's happening this is who i am rather than stepping back and going oh that's that's the cause yeah precisely so like i said it's still a journey i mean anything can knock you at any given point oh, yeah. but it's just about trying to understand 
how to help mitigate the impact of a bad mental health day. And it is okay to let people know that you're not doing well because yeah. I wasn't. And I know it sounds like a cliche. It's okay not to be okay, but yeah. it genuinely is. There's no shame in it. For yeah. all you know, there's more people suffering than are not. So it's really without important. Yeah, without a doubt. You know, when, when you start speaking about it and other people say, oh, well, I do this, I do that, I'm taking this medication. And then, you know, it's, it's a really massive thing, isn't it? Um, you're talking about the job that you, you're actually really enjoying now. I mean, the theory is, I thought that you were supposed to go to university and then you come out and then you immediately land the job that you've been wanting all your life and you're a manager or you're doing this and that. Um, so you're kind of proving that wrong a little bit. I can see your head shaking there. So this is going to get awkward. So that doesn't happen then. I hate or it didn't happen to you. Yeah. You know, it, it hasn't happened to anybody I've, I've actually spoke to yet. So I'm still looking for that one person it's actually happened to. It hasn't happened to anybody that I know. And I know a lot of people, Danny. Yeah. Now, the only <laughs> caveat to that is, like I said before, and I know it sounds silly and it sounds very elitist, but my friends that studied medicine, my friends that studied dentistry, my friends that studied something that lands you in a vocation, mm -hmm. be it law, be it engineering, be it something like that, I'm happy to say that they found their path quite okay. easily. They slipped into what they wanted to do quite easily. Graduated, already had something waiting for them. Right. Unfortunately, for other people who do, say, humanities subjects or the creative arts or other sorts of things, it's not as easy because it's not a linear career path. You'll find yourself jumping around in various different industries, various different sectors, trying to find your way around at the very beginning. So, for instance, I graduated in 2018, a couple of months later, landed in an insurance company, which was the last job that I was talking about. That insurance and financial services provider, I didn't know what the hell it was before uni. I just found a job opening, applied for it, got in. Pretended like I was passionate about insurance and financial services. I didn't know anything about it, in all honesty, but I just sold myself enough to get the job. Started that two months having after graduated, and it seemed like a good enough job to me at first. I thought, well, I'm grateful to have got something. And you're always taught to be grateful, not to be complaining about a job, even if you've got one. So every time I, I kind of had a few hiccups and a few grievances about the job, I just thought, no, there's so many people who haven't got a job, so I can't complain about mine. So I was kind of suppressing all that. But I, there were a few murmurs in the background that I wasn't actually liking it, but I tried to ignore it. And I just thought, well, as a graduate, I'm an early entrant. What do I know about work? Let me just stick it out. Um, so I found myself in a job that's not very neatly aligned to my course, because you'd think PPE, probably going to go into local government, council work, civil servant, that sort of thing. That didn't actually work out in terms of my career trajectory. I just ended up working in finance, like I said. Um, but navigating that space about I've actually majored in economics or humanities or whatever, and going into a place of work where you're surrounded by people who have studied the stock market, who have studied investment banking, who have got PhDs and masters and everything maths and actuarial related. And you find yourself there with a bit of imposter syndrome thinking, how did I get this job? Because everybody around me comes from a very specific background, like elitist universities, um, Oxbridge educated, predominantly male, predominantly white. It was quite difficult for me to navigate that space. Because it always is going to be difficult in financial services, isn't it? Especially as a woman in there. So it was a bit, it was a massive, huge learning curve for me. Um, but again, I got a lot from it. For all of the negatives, I did learn a lot. It just wasn't the place for me to develop and to prosper in terms of my career journey. Yeah. Um, but I just say to anybody watching this, 
don't expect the first place that you land to be the place to nurture you and it won't be your job for life for the vast, yeah. vast majority of us and yeah. um, like I said if you're going to go on to do nursing dentistry become a doctor fair enough you'll probably end up doing the same thing for the rest of your life because you're happy to do that mm-hmm. but for any other subject that doesn't land you in a specific job or a career um don't be afraid to move around if you need to so I know there's a general rule of thumb stick it out for two years and then move on so you don't have too many gaps or too much jumping around in your CV so generally speaking that's what I've done I've stayed there for about two years started my new job in January that was around the two and a half year mark and now I find myself somewhere else um, which is neatly aligned to the degree that I did and it is actually stretching me in ways that I wanted a career day so it does work out in the end you've just got to be patient yeah, so what, what are you doing now that you enjoy so much? And, and also, uh, I'm going to come back to something you said there um, in a few minutes with regards to um, uh, white males being, in, you know, in charge and the stereotypes of that. Um, and also, you know, you said being stretched and challenged at work. Um, so what are you doing now then and why you're enjoying it so much? So I actually work in the civil service now. I think okay. for NDA reasons, I'm not allowed to say where I'm working and what fine. I'm doing. But <laughs> but, it, but in terms of that, just to give you a vague idea, I'm a project manager. So I'm working towards my qualifications to become a project manager, um, working with different programmes, different projects within that department of the civil service. And the reason that I like it here is I kind of have ownership to steer my own learning and development. So as soon as I landed in the job, they said, We've got a couple of projects. We like your experience. We know that you're quite capable in the world of project management. Take your pick. Which which project do you think you want to do? Because we've got so many openings wow. at the moment. They did a bulk recruitment at the time. They said, you're the first one through the door. Take your pick. Which one takes your fancy? And then it all took off from there. So I had, I had about eight or nine projects laid out for me neatly. And they were like, which one would you want to do? And tell us about your reasons. How can we mould it to suit you a bit more? And what sort of things are you looking to get out of this role? Let's try and plug you in. There's learning and development courses in the next few months, all happening virtually. Some external providers are providing them. Some are being done internally. Let us help you to sign yourself up for them. If there's any gaps in your sort of field of expertise, we'd want to plug them in as early as your first few months. Don't be shy. Just let us know. Have this career conversation early. It's never too early to have these conversations. And I was completely blown away because I came from a role where you did what you were told. Yeah. If something came up in terms of a conference or, you know, a, a webinar, you'd have to fight for half an hour or an hour of your time to be taken out of the workplace to go and do it. Yeah. And then you'd have to give a business case and you'd have to go through layers of bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And it was just an absolute nightmare, as you'd expect in financial services. Yeah. You're, you're destroying a few. Of- yeah, you're destroying a few stereotypes here as well, because you're, you're saying yeah. things like stretching yourself challenging yourself learning developing um because you know I, I do all the cheesy stuff that you'll be learning all your life and the students go oh no he's off on one again but thank you for backing me up um but also you know i wouldn't it be easier to just get a job that pays well you don't have to do much you don't have a responsibility um because that is also what i hear a lot but like i just want to get i just want to earn money and not have to do much but you're throwing that you know really to the to the curb um so so what's that yeah. all about what why you why, why not the easy route i mean we're young enough to make mistakes that's always been my mantra so i'm i'm in my mid-20s now i'm 25 <laughs> but um when you're straight when you're finishing college when you're finishing uni you're in your early 20s and that is the time to 
honestly pull your socks off and do what you can in terms of the professional sphere do as many courses and qualifications as you can learning will never stop like as you well have said but I mean developing yourself in an area that you want to specialize in when you find that is very important so you see it on twitter and social media all the time work hard in your 20s so you set yourself up nicely in your 30s and your 40s and people kind of create those timelines almost kind of subconsciously not knowing that it doesn't always work out like that but for me in particular what I found really instrumental to my growth and my development is opening myself up to a wealth of opportunity so whenever these opportunities land on my desk or new projects come to my desk I will not turn them away I will find a way to take on exciting projects or things that I feel like I haven't done before because when you're young and you don't have as many responsibilities especially as a woman I think it's really important even more important to kind of kickstart your career as early as you can so I mean if you come out of uni start a new job don't really know what you want to do find yourself firmly planted in a job that you don't really know what you want to get out of if you've got a half decent line manager in a in any sort of company they will really help you to get to where you want to be but they will ask the hard questions what do you want to do to get yourself to where you want to be I can only help you so much so you kind of need to create a roadmap almost just like Boris has done to get out of lockdown you have to create a career roadmap and say where do you want to be in the next few months what do you need to do to get there how can we as a company help you and when you think like that I mean if you don't ask you don't get because I used to think I'm waiting for someone to tell me this sounds like a good idea do you want to do it I didn't really know what was the obvious natural step to my progression Mm -hmm. but now that I'm thinking more in terms of okay I find myself in a particular strand I landed in project management sort of stuck with me I quite enjoy it there's certain qualifications that is the natural trajectory in order of project management if I get those under my belt what will that do for me? And I can see how that trajectory is going to go in the next few years. Mm-hmm. And I can kind of pitch that to my new line manager now and say, this is what I carried over from my previous job. These are the gaps. This is the order of things that I want to continue on. It's a bit of a journey for me. Yeah. And there's enough of a business case because I'm a project manager in this role yeah, as yeah. well. Are you happy for me to continue? And like I said, my current line manager is over the moon that I'm bringing things to him to say, can I do that? These are the dates. Um, can you make sure there are arrangements to cover me while I'm away at a course or a conference and they're more than happy to sign it off but you've just got to have a clear picture of what you want to do and as early as my first year after uni Danny I had no idea this Mm -hmm. is by no means you're going to have your life figured out as early as the first year post-graduation because you're not you figure it out along the way based on different and and there's a lot of pressure isn't it you know we, we put it on right from your you know year nine what are your options but I don't really want to know what I want to do for the rest of my life. Okay, so you get to GCSEs, and then you've got to choose again what you're going to do for the rest of your life, and then you finish up. Yeah, what you're going to do for the rest of your life, you're like, oh, my gosh, you know, just <laughs> let me breathe a little bit. But how great is it that you are kind of finding that balance between contributing to the business, because they pay your wages, um, but also, you know, pushing yourself forward uh, and driving yourself forward and, and developing yourself, which is obviously helping you as well. Um, you, you mentioned a couple of times things like um, being a woman, so, you know, it's hard to turn the telly on and not see um, racism, to see sexism um, in, in all kinds of fields. You know, we look at the gender pay gap. You can look at sports. You can look at FTSE 100 companies. And, you know, these things are still around. And it's, it's a bit tricky for me because I am the old white guy, you know. Um, so, you know, I, I don't see it from the perspective that my students do. So 
has that been something that you've had to have you had to work harder for it you know do you see it have you seen it um and, and are you like constantly conscious about that I always have been and putting career on one side for the minute growing yeah. up it was always something that kept being pushed on me and um, by friends family I was always constantly being told you're a girl so you can't always be so interested in sports all the time you can't always be seen to be in and out of a gym that's populated by loads of muscly old men doing boxing because I'm a woman a young woman going into a gym that's completely packed out with men who are also on various MMA and boxing courses but as not just a woman but a woman of colour and of Asian heritage and Asian descent it was always something I struggled with so as early as in my college days this was in college I would comment on the match the night before or a football game or something like that and all the boys around me would be like, what do you know? What's the blood type of Pep Guardiola's nephew? And I'd be like, for God's sake, girls can be interested in sport. And then they'd quiz me. When was the last time Sir Alex Ferguson won an away game in, I don't know, against Everton or something? Meanwhile, they're having to search the answer themselves. Exactly. And they were always, honestly, I don't know if it was something, there's a lot to be said about the demographic of the college I went to as well. But they weren't used to girls being interested in sports. I was a token girl waving the flag for sport and saying, you know, I do Thai boxing on the weekends. And they were like, you don't do boxing. What's Thai boxing then? Tell us about it. I was like, do you want me to knock you out? Yeah, yeah, you You could take them. (laughs) (laughs) So that was my first sort of thing, because you see it on the news all the time where female pundits or commentators are getting it in the neck on social media and they say one thing and it gets blown out of proportion and misconstrued. I found that was happening for me throughout college and school, being a girl interested in sport, interested in things that are traditionally associated with boys, gaming, the new FIFA game, NBA, sports, athleisure. I was always interested in trainers, you know, a sort of tomboy, even though I hate that term. But it was always blatantly made obvious to me that, I mean, some people would say you're just trying to fit in with boys, you're trying to get a bit of attention. And it was always something I was made super aware of because I thought, hang on a minute, people are thinking I'm doing this for publicity or doing it for the wrong reasons. They don't understand that I'm actually someone with a passion for sport. I'm not trying to get anyone's attention or impress the boy, but it was always something I was battling with. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it was so (laughs) difficult. People were like really bothering me, even at college and at uni, you're obviously an adult, well, getting there anyway. And you think, okay, it was funny when we were in primary school, but come on, like, it's it's not an act. It's something that I'm constantly interested in. And then even when I, I, I think I joined Twitter about 10 years ago, people were like, give it a rest, go back to the kitchen. Um, what do you know, silly Asian woman, you know, racist slurs, sexist comments. And it was like, it was a whole minefield for me on social media. And I, I didn't even respond to it. I just thought, live and let live. They can say what they want, don't want to entertain it. And then came the career things later on. So, of course, uni was absolutely fine, even though university was predominantly male, pale and stale, as I like to call it. So PPE, traditionally an Oxbridge subject, was opened up to University of Birmingham as a red brick uni. When they started it off, I think it was 70-30, the ratio of boys to girls on the course. Um, And then particularly so for my year, I think it was 80-20, and I was the only person of colour studying PPE at university that year but what I will say is 
they were quite liberal in terms of their ways of thinking. They were from really posh areas, from Hertfordshire and Cornwall and Kent and you name it. They came from the most privileged areas, but they didn't really see colour, the students, and that's what I liked about them. So it wasn't made to feel like, oh, this other person is bringing otherness into the course. It wasn't like that. I think I was always quick to strike a conversation about rugby or gaming or something that they were interested in. So I kind of got away with it. Had I not shared the same interests as them, I think I would have felt it a bit more. But again, that's another example of being around unfamiliar territory, you know, being around people who weren't raised the way you were, um, different socioeconomics, spoke really well, um, had a wealth of work experience, got internships at all big FTSE, 100 companies abroad and in London, they were well established, good networks, that sort of thing. So I, I kind of felt up against it when it came to things like placements when they already had their work out for them. And I was still kind of, you know what it's like, Danny, yeah, <laughs> when yeah. you're surrounded by people who just know what they're doing. Yeah. So there's that. And then coming back to the whole um, sexism in the workplace. Yes, in my last job, the financial services company, I kind of felt like a diversity hire. I probably wasn't. I don't have that confirmation. But looking around, I came into a company completely white. One, and when I say completely white, 100% white. I worked in a division called the risk division. And the entirety of my company, I'd say, bar the IT professionals who are usually mostly Indian and Gujarati Indian, everybody else in terms of bankers, insurers, actuaries, that sort of thing, they were all white. And then in my division where I worked, I worked in information security and data protection, all white, and they were all privileged. They all lived in like rural communities embedded into the neighboring areas of the city where we worked. And it was just really difficult to kind of cement myself and carve out a place for myself in that team because everybody was all about going for, um, going for a drink on a night out yeah. on a Friday night or you know everything revolved around pubs and alcohol and of course as a Muslim girl they weren't really going to accommodate me they were like oh you can come along we'll get you an orange juice but it's not the sort of <laughs> it's not the sort of environment I wanted to be around so that was always so challenging so I could go on I mean at the risk of making this three-hour video um I, I I honestly could go on with the examples of different things that I've had to kind of navigate but again, in between the whole being Muslim, being a woman, being a person of colour, being somebody who's interested in sports, you name it, I've been hit in one direction or the other. And in this case, 360 degrees has been something yeah. I've been targeted about. Yeah. And I know they do say, you know, there's a call for, you know, brown and ethnic minority people and BAME people in workplaces. I sometimes think it's just something that they advertise, but they're not truly committed to. Because although I, I ended up getting over the line and getting a job with that financial services company, looking around me, I couldn't see that there was enough of an effort. So I was still the token brown yeah. Muslim girl. And if they were really committed to it and they had a quota, there would be more people that look like me yeah. or more people that came from the same backgrounds. So it's still very much a challenge. And a lot of companies are finding ways of trying to do it that's not performative and mm. doesn't seem like a gimmick. But at the moment, I feel like they're really up against it because not enough is being done. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's terrible in terms of it's, a, it's a, you know, we call them tick box exercises, but they just have exactly. to be done. And to think that, you know, everything you've done um, or everything people have done in their lives, as long as they tick a box with a certain person in a certain office somewhere, then, oh, yeah, that'll do. Um, you know, to, to think that you can kind of belittle people like that is, is quite astonishing, really. So, so what do you do? I mean, you know, is it the you do you and you just work your backside off and just 
do your thing? Um, or, you know, is that the best way to kind of smash some of those barriers down and prove that, you know, it doesn't matter your colour, your um, your colour, your gender, your, yeah. you know, sexual orientation and things. You just, you just work your backside off and prove them wrong. Is, you know, what, what do I you think, say to that? In all honesty, the people that I was working with didn't mean to make me feel like I stood out. Okay. It was coming from a place of ignorance. They were very nice, well-respected people. Mm. I'd, I'd go out with them on a general, you know, work social, or I'd probably speak to them outside of work hours. They were genuinely very nice people. But what I'd find is they were brought up in very different environments and sheltered environments. They probably hadn't come across a Muslim person in the area that I worked in because it wasn't Birmingham. I was working in Stratford-upon-Avon then. That was where the head office was. So it was all very much in terms of that landscape it's predominantly white they're only accustomed to white people and when they do come come in contact with someone who's not white it's usually a tourist or someone who's on holiday checking out the sites in Stratford so they don't really know what it means to be a non-white person in the workplace so what I'd say is to answer your question how did I get around that I knew that it was coming from a place of ignorance and they weren't being spiteful or they weren't being mean in any way it's just they didn't know so when I had fully cemented myself into the team, things like Eid, things like Ramadan would come around and I'd say, by all means, you might feel shy or have reservations about asking me these questions, but please, by all means, I am happy to be that person who answers your questions. If you want to know a bit more about Ramadan, if you want to know about Eid, if you want to know about why I'm praying, because I used to take prayer breaks at work. And that was quite uncommon because no one had asked for a prayer room before. No one took their lunch hour in for increments for prayer reasons for instance so I had like my own sort of arrangements at work and they were very sort of motivated to ask the questions why do you do that because right. we once we once knew a Muslim who never played prayed we once knew a Muslim who never drank who wow. actually drank you know and it was always the questions about why did that Muslim do that and you're a Muslim but you're doing something else wow. <laughs> it, was like, it was a lot of pressure to be yeah. the poster girl for Islam or Pakistani yeah, yeah, culture yeah. or I don't know whatever whatever title you want to put on it I had to be that person but I was happy to be because I was the person saying you know I can if you have any questions about because they'd always say diversity and inclusion we're championing as many people as you can if you want to be a champion if you want to be an ambassador on a quarterly basis there's always events around that if you want to speak on things that are particularly close to home for you I'd always sign myself up to things like that and when I was trying to put questions out to the audience and engage with them you could actually tell the people that I worked with genuinely didn't know anything about what it means to be BAME or from Birmingham saying they always thought we've never been to Birmingham we only ever go there for Christmas shopping that's bizarre you know I mean the things I've learned working where I do you know it, it's just I take it for granted a bit but I just kind of know all this stuff and I can respect that and understand this and talk to people about certain things but then you know I do speak to some of my friends who teach in different areas and teach different students and uh you know the stories I tell them what really well how do you know that well don't you don't you know it? you know it's just that's just common knowledge to me now and it's it's great that again you know we help each other learn don't we you know you don't need to watch a tv show or read a read a web page just talk to people uh, and you know that seems to be a nice way to do it. i mean for me it was always i always felt like i had to work twice as hard to embed myself in those teams so like they'd go clay pigeon shooting on the weekends or they'd go for hikes in all these valleys and posh places and I'd be like 
you know, where did you go to play golf? What was it like? We should do it sometime, you know, trying to engage with them on the level that would suit them. Um, even though it was completely unknown territory for me, I don't know the first thing about golf. It's like my one blind spot when it comes to sport. So I'd be like, teach me about golf. Of all the things, yeah, but one thing you don't know. <laughs> I know, yeah. And then they'd be like, oh, we're not football people. We much prefer rugby. And that's when it came to my attention that sport can be so class-based. Like, you'd think, oh, no, you know, it's an equaliser. But it's really not. And, well, I kind of got um, a bit of an indication into that at university. So my course mates were very much rugby people over football. So I'd always struggle with them in that capacity. But I thought, oh, it's probably just the schools they went to and the people they are. But then it kind of came through again at work. And, you know, people who are much older than me were saying, yeah, we watch the Six Nations. We don't really watch the football. And so I had to make inroads to not overcompensate, but on the weekends, I'd tune into the Six Nations or the rugby and just to be able to have that conversation and to have those water cooler moments. And I think that helped bring me together in, in the networking space as well that I knew a little about a lot. So I could have these conversations and kind of, making rounds because sometimes you have to get to know somebody on that level before you can start a working relationship yeah, and that's yeah. what I tried to do yeah, fascinating you sound like me when I used to have to find out what happened in football because unless it was American <laughs> football I didn't have a clue so I'm like okay which team played here who was the score there and thankfully my father-in-law now is a Manchester City fan so I, I know oh, quite God. a lot about Manchester City whether you like it or not I actually know enough to kind of blag my way through a small talk conversation. So, you know, I need to thank him for that. Um, is he now a Manchester City fan or has he always been? Oh, a no, Manchester he's City he's fan? old school. He's um, oh. he's like super mega old school. His story is um, that he, he saw them at their worst point in their lowest division, their lowest ever loss. Um, so, no, he's 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 uh, he's proper. Don't worry about that. He's fine. Um, Fair enough. I'll sort you out another Zoom call with him. You can have a word. Um, so, Omara, this has been such an awesome hour. I can't. I was just looked at my phone and I'm at 54 minutes. Um, this, this is brilliant. I'm going to ask you one last question, man. One last question. So, um, if you could go back and uh, tell yourself at 17, 18, one piece of advice that you wish you could follow, what would it be? I would say trust your instinct. Despite what anyone, anyone and everyone else is telling you, I kid you not, you will have your best interests at heart and trust that voice inside your head. Because although I thought I knew everything at 17, you don't know everything at 17, but you know yourself well enough to trust your judgment. And honestly, I, I had this, it was a judgment call for me at the end. Should I go to uni? Should I not go to uni? And it was an internal dialogue I was having with myself for a couple of months. But as soon as something runs on your table that you think, actually, that's speaking to me, oh, like and it ignites this fire in your belly, act upon it and go through with it. Because if you think something is right for you, despite what anybody else tells you, and however much people try to put you off, follow, follow your instincts, because it's always right. In, in my case, it has been. And I genuinely think, believe in yourself and believe in your instinct. Thank that you. would be my thank you so much for, yeah no no that, that saves me saying it because i'll just think oh he's doing his spiel again and look, he's got his promotional posters or motivational <laughs> posters so no thank you for for your honesty on that and thank you so much for for your insight here um i feel like we could do this for like another several hours so i think we might have to do more um <laughs> because this I'm is, this is brilliant. <laughs> yeah yeah this is brilliant so um what i'll do i'll pause the recording we'll say a quick cheerio after that but all i'll say 
turnovers. Thank you so much. This is priceless information and advice um, and insight, you know, for anybody watching this. So uh, thank you so much. Uh, and we'll say, and what I will add, sorry, go before on, we go. Go on. You I tried am, to hit an hour. You, you got so three minutes. On, so, so for anybody who is watching this on the yeah, YouTube on, channel or by any other means, I am on Twitter. And as a fellow JC alumni, I would be happy to speak to anybody. If you have any career issues or anything with applications if you want me to proofread anything I am more than happy to help you because uh, I know the struggles and I always was, was looking for like a mentor at that age yeah, yeah. so I'm happy to help anybody um, awesome. any student do you want to show your... your twitter handle is oh yeah you can is put that it what the kids call it the yeah, yeah. I, can, I can put it up you can yeah. put it at the bottom there you go you so, do uh, it there you go so my twitter handle is at yeah. yours truly amara that's at yours truly amara and he's going to put it over there there you go. Oh, got to do editing now. I normally just upload it. Okay. Um, no, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. And, and how kind is that? You know, not every day you get somebody willing, you know, who's been there and done it and still doing it, really, uh, you know, to offer advice <laughs> yeah. and guidance. That's really kind of you. Thank you. Um, credit to you. So thanks. Uh, cool. All right. Let's say cheerio. Um, I'll stop this up and we'll have a quick chat. But uh, yeah, thank you so much. And uh, appreciate Johnny. it. All right. See thank ya. you. Bye-bye. What could I possibly add to that? Amazing. Thank you so much, Umara, for giving your time to talk through such amazing life experiences and giving such just brilliant, stunning advice. I, I really hope that everybody takes it on board, and I think even I will be, you know, to be perfectly honest with you. Just, just brilliant. Thank you. Really, really thank you. Have I said thank you enough? Thank you. And thanks to everybody else who's been watching. Really appreciate it as well. Feel free to keep saying hi on the social media channels. Like, share, subscribe and do all those good things. Really appreciate it. And uh, I'll see you again on the next episode of Talking Business. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talking Business with me, Danny Pardo. I hope the advice and insights in this episode make a difference to you, your studies and your career. You can find more by searching for Pardo's Business, that's me by the way, on Google, YouTube and Instagram. I'm also at Pardo's Business on Twitter. If you like what you heard, please do take a moment to rate, review, share and subscribe to this podcast. It's all very much appreciated. We'll catch you again soon on the next episode of Talking Business with Danny Pardo. Thanks and cheerio!